This is To God's Greater Glory with Pastor Chris Neiswanger, a ministry of the Memphis Apologetics Group, who are dedicated to answering the hard questions and controversies reaching the Memphis metropolitan area and the world. Our broadcast is sponsored by Graceview Church in South Haven, Mississippi. You can reach Pastor Chris and Graceview Church at graceviewsouthhaven.com. Yeah, and you find if you're studying maybe perhaps popular culture that every once in a while someone who was famously anti-religious or someone who would have even described themselves as an atheist suddenly comes to a point where they realize, you know, that worldview doesn't really sustain me. And uh, people like Francis Collins, who was a very well-known scientist, um, sort of has an epiphany one day, just staring at a waterfall and putting things together and, and recognizing, no, there's got to be some organizing principles or values that really determine how I should live my life. That's Kent Morlock speaking with Pastor Chris, and I'm Carl Casperson. Today's episode is in two parts, with Pastor Chris taking his microphone on the road and speaking with Pastor Kent from Richland Church in Rosemont, Tennessee, and later on, Dr. Calvin Beisner from the Cornwall Alliance, located just outside Memphis. Here's part one with Kent and Chris. Now, I know that you have spent a lot of time engaging, especially with young people, on the issues of the existence of God, the different things going on in the culture. You really have an expertise for this kind of subject matter. Well, yeah, I did serve for a long time in Southern California. California is what is called as a youth minister, and in that capacity, there's always a ton of kids coming to church because their friends are going, and a lot of conversations begin about where people are in the world, how do they know that there is a God, and how can you prove his existence, and if there is a God, what does he have to do with me? So those types of conversations take place readily. Yeah, and with that, it does have a way of forming itself into cultural expectations. In other words, people not thinking about the existence of God and the visitation of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ tends to manifest itself in a certain kind of a life. Well, you just mentioned the word visitation, and we are right now in the midst of Christmas time, and the whole Christmas story uh, brings up that point. Did God really come to us in some fashion to reveal something about himself? Yeah, there was this great philosopher, a Christian philosopher in the 1970s and such named Francis Schaeffer, and he put together a video series called How Should We Then Live? And one of the things he was dealing with is, okay, once we know there's a God, then what? But today we're kind of dealing with the problem of a lot of people don't even know that there is a God, or at least they're, they're so resistant to the idea of God that they won't even deal with the arguments. And there we have a little bit of a discussion about how people decide what authority will rule over their thinking and in their life. Why does someone come to a point looking at the creation, looking at their situation in life, and just think that they've just sort of arrived here and there's no one to speak any purpose to it? You know, and with that, there are arguments. There are these great arguments that have been used for thousands of years by Christians, and actually we'll talk about the ancient pagans too, like Plato and Aristotle, who also had to grapple with the fact that they knew that God existed, even though they didn't know him the way we do. Yeah, they would look at not only at the creation, but they would look at the way that we would interact with each other and sense that there should be some expectation, maybe some moral and ethical values that should define our relationships, and they would have to appeal to someone else beyond just the person who had the most power to determine what's right or what's wrong. Sure. And one of the most powerful arguments from those days has been nicknamed 
the cosmological argument. Mm. Now, this cosmological argument, some of the great Christians through history that have used it powerfully to great effect, especially in regard to people's thinking about God that don't necessarily know him, are people as famous as Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther, John Calvin, more recently, great preachers like Charles Spurgeon, even uh, great preachers like Adrian Rogers. I mean, here, uh, they're kind enough to let us uh, participate through the uh, recording studio of Love Worth Finding Ministries. By the way, uh, we really appreciate that from you folks. But with that, you know, this is not something that's gotten old. It's every bit as vibrant and useful today as it was a couple of thousand years ago. Yeah, and you find if you're studying maybe perhaps popular culture that every once in a while, someone who was famously anti-religious or someone who would have even described themselves as an atheist suddenly comes to a point where they realize, you know, that worldview doesn't really sustain me. And uh, people like Francis Collins, who was sure, right. res- uh, a very well-known scientist, um, sort of has an epiphany one day just staring at a waterfall and putting things together and, and recognizing, no, there's got to be some organizing principles or values that really determine how I should live my life. Yeah, and world-famous, captivating atheists like Anthony Flew, and mm-hmm. more recently, David Berlinski, uh, that have spent entire careers in major universities teaching on the sciences and mathematics, eventually come around to the position that they really can't explain not only the diversity, but the form, nature, and order of the universe without reference to some great intellect behind it all. <laughs> there is this great uh, theologian pastor that I know that you know uh, – uh, well named R.C. Sproul, God rest his soul, Amen. he's passed on. Uh, but he was the first one to really draw me into specifically mm. the cosmological argument. And because uh, at first, even the name was so big that it was kind of freaking me out. And uh, the idea is, you know, uh, I already kind of knew there was a God. And I was mm-hmm. okay with that. I didn't know him well or know the scriptures well, but I was okay with the fact that there was a God. And uh, maybe you've known it all your life and people have other questions about that, but everybody might have a basic and necessary experience of God or something like that. But you get back to this idea that you can't explain the world you live in now without reference to an ultimate first cause that's a worthy explanation of everything that exists now. Sorry to be confusing with the language, Pastor, but maybe you can bring us further into that. Well, we just sort of look at the way that we came into this world. Something brought us here. Something was responsible for what brought that here. And we like to order things. We like to see things make logical, sequential facts. So, uh, you got to push back and push back to think, well, there's some first something that that sprang onto the universe. And everyone's grown up in a school situation. They've heard of the evolutionary Big Bang, and they, they think about some infinite nothingness that so suddenly exploded and everything spilled out of that. So, we all long to know about something that came first and what would be the impetus behind a first anything. So, you know, a lot of people by nickname have called this the first cause mm-hmm. argument. There has to be a first cause. Well, but doesn't something have to have caused that first cause and caused that first cause as cause and so on? Yeah, that's sort of the infinite regression argument. And those who are skeptical of saying, well, there has to be a first cause would say, well, yeah, you just can't get a first um, because everything 
is dependent upon something else. And the Christian worldview would say, well, that's kind of why you need to start with a God, because he had no cause. Well, that's the thing. I mean, if if God's the, f- the first cause of everything, then what's the cause of God? That's right. I mean, it is kind of a little bit of a difficult conundrum you get to, but the Christian isn't really saying that everything has a cause. That's not exactly the argument, right? Well, you better explain that to me a little bit more then. (laughs) Well, uh, we believe that everything that we experience in this entire universe has a cause. This room has a cause. Mm. This planet that the room is on has a cause. This uh, solar system has a cause. The sun has a cause. If you trace things back far enough, even matter, light, time, all these things seem to have been caused by something else. Even if you were to go all the way back to a Big Bang, the Big Bang has to be caused by something. But since all of the things that we see in the universe seem contingent upon something other than themselves, that doesn't remove the necessity that there has to be something that has the power of being in and of itself that is the cause of everything else. In other words... Everything can't have a cause other than itself, and we call God that being who is so great that he has the power in himself of existence and doesn't need another cause behind him. So you're talking about things being necessary. There's a necessary being, and there's contingent being. I mean, uh, you know, uh, we might sit around and think to ourselves, I'm the necessary being. Hmm. I am so necessary. (laughs) But really— At the end of the day, in the quiet moments of our lives, we all know that we're really dependent upon everything around mm-hmm. us. We we didn't give birth to ourselves and we can't keep ourselves alive beyond the span of, say, 110 years, right? Yes. So we're a very contingent being. But for contingent being to exist, there must be some kind of a necessary being. Now, you know, great atheistic philosophers like Bertrand Russell was one of the most famous, and he had many famous debates in the earlier part of the last century with Christians and sometimes argued them to a standstill because he was so acute and so great at philosophy. But at the same time, he was never able to answer the question. He would just go, well, the universe Hmm. is the necessary being. But we all kind of know that the universe is just the collection of all the things in the universe. There's not some other thing called the universe behind the universe. And so that's what drove some of these more recent atheists to move to a position that I would not call Christianity, but I would call it theism. They said there must be some kind of a being so smart and so powerful that it at least started these things going. Because we have them here now and we're kind of stuck with them and we need a sufficient explanation. Yeah, and when you start traveling down that road, you either become a skeptic because really this is a shell game. You're 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 sort of shifting around the cups and you and you're trying to say find the nut, find the nut that's under the cup. And then people say, well, there must be multiverses. There must be so many contingencies that we don't even know about that they they don't even want to consider the reality that they're living in right now. And so suddenly they're exercising some form of faith that there has to be some other alternative ways to explain everything. And, you know, we could always go to the place where we just say, well, you know, we haven't found out through the sciences yet. In other words, someday somebody will figure it out and figure out why there's an entire universe, even though none of it was caused by anything. But, you know, well, we call that living by faith. You that's know, but right. that's, not, that's, that's too much faith. That's too much faith for the Christian. The Christian needs real answers that are at least related to the scientific findings. We can't just hope someday somebody will answer something about nothing. And nothing is a problem because if there was ever really nothing, nothing, there would be nothing now. And yet we find ourselves with something and so something has to have caused it all. Uh, Some of the great philosophers have talked about this in like the links of a chain. 
If you've ever held a chain or had to get a chain cut for something, every link you go back and it's connected to the link before it. Well, eventually you get to the end, right? And then you have no link before it. Well, even time and space and matter are like that. Eventually, you can't just depend on that there was a previous link to a previous link to a previous link going back into infinity because you would never have the first link to get the series of links started. It's kind of like how you can't start counting at number two. <laughs> you have to start at number one. Otherwise, you'll never get to number three. And then on top of that, they're still looking for the missing link. (laughs) That would be another good show. Yeah, okay. People from uh, the atheistic point of view, like someone like Hume, who was not satisfied with any Christian argumentation, and and he would offer an alternative viewpoint, but you would listen to it and you'd say, how does that satisfy you? How do you think that, well, maybe... Things just appear to be that way and that there's some other way to explain it. Well, again, you're moving the ball down the road and you're not sure. dealing with uh, the existence that, that you're presently living today. Yeah, and that's why we ta- use the word necessary. Like mm-hmm. we all know the way we use necessary in, in, in ordinary language. Like it's, it's necessary you get home by 6. But really, <laughs> you might get home by 6.15. But there is a necessary existence of a being like God. It's not really an option. And I know that these days, because we're talking in apologetics and such, we can veer over into contemporary culture and the sciences and say that a lot of people have just gone to this. You know what? You can't explain life on earth or even the evolution of the species by any amount of time on earth. So we're just going to say it was aliens. Mm. And that's another way of like kicking the ball down the street. And it's like, well, okay, you know, maybe it was. But I mean, that's not an answer that comes from anything other than just conjecture. I mean, you're just making up some other source of intelligence. No, there's evidence for for UFOs and things like that. Yeah, but I'm just saying as far as the intelligence to form the kind of a world we see around us, well, then how did their world form? And how did their lives come about? And where did their intelligence come from? And how were they designed? That's exactly You just get exactly the same problems that you have on Earth, and you spread them everywhere in the universe. And the late-night radio shows really don't tell you either. They just kind of tickle your ears about, oh, what did someone (laughs) see, or what's this pictograph mean, or how could this building ever have been constructed by mere mortals? Well, as you know, we did a show in Los Angeles that was on at the same time as uh, Greg Norrie and uh, Coast to Coast. That's right. So whenever they had a boring show, they'd come over and listen to our show and call us up and ask us crazy questions about aliens. That's right. But now everybody's talking about it because there has to be some way to explain what we see around us. Well, the scientific community, when they have their uh, consortiums and they try to have agreed upon explanation for how this whole thing got here, it is exactly as you said, they're kicking the ball down the road because when you read the textbooks and what is sort of propagated for our students today, I don't think all the big time scientists go with that anymore. The 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 wonderful thing that science does, and everyone wants to be scientific, is that it ends up asking more questions than we can ever find answers to. Mm. And as soon as we dive down into some of these simple arguments that were at one time supposed to ridicule Christianity to say, well, no, there's a scientific way to explain that. Well, the scientists continue to dig and look a little bit further and they say, I don't know how we could ever have imagined that what we believed Hmm. 20 years ago is true today with what we know now. So it is a, a curious way that 
as we referenced earlier, some pretty big-time scientists are, are turning a corner on their belief on God. Sure. And what we find in the world that we exist in with all the technology and the technological advances, you know, I talk to kids about, uh, my kids, about what it was like when I was a kid <laughs> when, you know, our, our phone was an object on the wall right. and you had to do the little dials. And I remember the first guy in the neighborhood got a car phone and it was about the size of a bread box and he was a doctor because only fancy rich people had them. Now, everybody's got one in their pocket. So technology and knowledge and understanding is changing so fast. But purpose and meaning and understanding and what it is to be a human being, those haven't changed at all. We still have exactly the same crisis of personhood that they had 2,000 years ago and we're still having today. And I think the the culture sort of resonates with what you've just said there because there's more and more popular movies and uh, television shows that want to come back and visit that. Yes, we're advanced. We have technology. We can actually heal a lot of diseases that we couldn't in the past. But does that make us a better people? Um, is progress the thing that's going to make us a better people when people really at the heart of their soul want significance, they want to be loved, they want to be understood, and a lot of those things aren't answered in a test tube. Sure. And if we have spent the last few thousand years developing to the place where we finally understand that human life is irrelevant and we don't matter, Hmm. we might have made a horrible mistake somewhere along the way. Whatever answer we come to as to the ultimate cause and meaning of the universe and what it is to be a human being in this tiny speck of a planet spinning around a ball of fire that's going through space, (laughs) it had better be able to explain the distinction between good and evil, between right and wrong behavior, human relationships, the love that we have for each other, community. All of these are real things that are referenced within the context of the way you interpret who and what you are that you can't just conveniently leave out because you can't explain the universe in a materialistic fashion if you put all that stuff in. In other words, whatever your first cause is has to be sufficient to explain the real life that we actually live, not some fantasy life where nothing matters. Well, don't we sort of need to talk about that then? If, we, if we're going to say there's a first cause and there's God, how do you get to first cause We have significance. Well, why don't we do that for the next episode? Why don't we really focus in on that aspect of cosmological argumentation? You've been listening to Pastor Kent Morlock from Richland Church in Rosemark, Tennessee with the Memphis Apologetics Group. Thank you so much for being here, Pastor. It's great, Chris. Are you a Christian? Sure. Yes. Yes. Someone. No. What does being a Christian mean to you? I wouldn't necessarily say I believe in... Him, but I, I do believe there's some, some spiritual stuff going on in the air. I believe in reincarnation, but like when you read about the in the Bible and stuff like that, it makes sense. So like, there's nothing wrong with like dibbling and dabbling. Uh, it means I'm being saved by God, no matter what I do. It means loving God, listening to His Word, and loving everybody. Uh, it's good. I, I try to spend my time with God, but, you know, I really, I really don't have that much time, you know, busy with school and stuff. Thank you, Anna, for that man-on-the-street moment. Now here's part two with Chris and Dr. Beisner from the Cornwall Alliance. Dr. Beisner, thank you so much for being here tonight. My pleasure. Thank you. Now, Dr. Beisner is an American Christian interdisciplinary scholar 
and writer in the fields of theology, Christian apologetics, church history, political philosophy, and environmental ethics and stewardship. And he's the founder and national spokesman of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. So, you know, uh, doctor, I'm sure it's not lost on you that for a lot of us, even the name of the organization is a little long. But please, give us some of the background and, and why you went into this specific field. Yeah, sure. Um, well, actually, it can start very, very young. When I was a little toddler, my family lived in Calcutta, India. My father was with the United States State Department. And about three, week, three months after we got there, my mother contracted some sort of disease that paralyzed her. My father couldn't take the family away right away. That didn't work. And so for about six months, every morning very early, uh, an Indian woman would arrive at our home and take me by the hand and walk me several blocks to an Indian family's home where I spent the day. Along the way, I saw two things that have stayed in my mind as picture memories ever since. One was a beautiful, enormous green tree with a vine hanging out of it with enormous, beautiful red flowers on it. And above that, the blue sky and the sun. The other set of picture memories was of the bodies of the people who had died overnight lying on the street over which I walked every morning for six months. Through those two memories, those two picture memories of a little child, when I became a Christian later and began studying the scriptures and eventually began really studying a lot about what the scriptures have to say, both about God's creation and, and our responsibility as his, his image bearers in the world to exercise a godly dominion over this creation, and about poverty and our responsibility toward the poor, I realized that God had given me very, very early on a very powerful experience that motivated me to want to take care of both of those things, the poor and the creation, and to balance those. And eventually, as I studied these things, I came to realize that you really cannot be good stewards of creation unless you have also overcome poverty. And you really can't overcome poverty well while abusing creation. So we have to do the two together as, as Christians. And the scripture gives us plenty of instruction of our duty to that and a good deal even about how to go about it. Just the other day, I, I took my kids. My little girl wanted to go to Bass Pro Shop down in the Pyramid uh, mm -hmm. in downtown Memphis because it's a wonderful place for kids to play it and is. everything. And, and uh, she's turning 10, so we go through uh, some of the places where it's obvious that it's set up for duck hunting. And, you know, she watches a lot of Disney and stuff, so she's highly speculative about hunters. And, yeah. and so I'm explaining to her that, you know, uh, the hunters, especially in this part of the country, are the environmentalists. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's hard yes. to talk to kids about this, but there's this practical environmentalism. And then there's this theoretical environment. The theoretical yes. environmentalists, they, you know, live in New York and they only eat sushi because they care about the environment. And practically, though, Christians and people with conservative values have tended to be the people that really cared and took care of nature and the environment for others. So there really is a Christian understanding of stewardship over creation, right? 
Yeah, there is. And I hinted at it a, a minute ago by, by talking about our having dominion over the earth. That comes from Genesis 1.28. Having created Adam and Eve, male and female, in his own image, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and everything that moves on the face of the earth. Now, if you were brand new to reading the Bible and you had just read Genesis 1, 1 through 27, and then you came to 28, what would you know about what this dominion should look like? Well, since man is made in God's image, our dominion should look like his dominion. Where do you find out about that? Well, in the first 25 verses, God starts with nothing and he gets everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He brought light out of darkness. He brought order out of chaos. He brought life out of non-life. He brought tremendous variety of life. He told each form of life to be fruitful and multiply and fill its niche in the earth. Uh, and then he gave mankind dominion over that. Well, this means our dominion should reflect his. Our dominion should be one that brings truth out of falsehood, taking the metaphors of light and darkness, that brings order out of chaos, greater order out of lesser order, that brings more life out of less life. So at the Cornwall Alliance, we define godly dominion as men and, uh, men and women working together lovingly to enhance the fruitfulness and the safety and the beauty of the earth to the glory of God and the benefit of our neighbors. This has been To God's Greater Glory with Pastor Chris Neiswanger, a ministry of the Memphis Apologetics Group sponsored by Graceview Church in South Haven, Mississippi. You can reach Pastor Chris and Graceview Church at graceviewsouthhaven.com. 